Now this week, the steering team basically reminded me that Jesus said, feed my sheep, not my giraffes. Um, so put the food where people can reach it. Um, and this means that we're going to take a little longer on this series than I planned, because trying to get through 50 verses in a single Sunday um, clearly didn't really work. Um, so I need, in, in fairness to the people who were here last week, just to say I need to, do need to go back, because as you remember, those who were here, I said, like I said, okay, we'll skip that, we'll skip that, and so we want to go back and do justice to the, the passage. Um, and we'll also just take a little bit longer. So last week in Daniel chapter 2, we encountered a truly remarkable dream that God gave to two different men independently of each other. Firstly, to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he didn't tell anyone. And remember, he's a hostile witness to this kingdom that troubled him greatly. It gave him sleepless nights. Um, and, and, and so our first, as it were, witness in the book of Daniel to the kingdom that God is going to bring comes from a hostile source. It comes from someone who's not interested in God's kingdom, sees it actually as a threat. And then, of course, Daniel not only receives the dream, uh, as it were, in a vision of the night, as he turns to God in the face of death and its threat, he then relays and interprets the dream to the king. Um, and we want to pick it up where we, in the interpretation. So I know there's so much cool stuff in the chapter. I tried to do some justice to it last week, but I want to go back to the interpretation this week because that's the bit that we really had to rush through. This was your dream. Now, the dream was of a tall statue. It had a gold top, then silver shoulders, then bronze waist, and then uh, legs of iron, and then feet of iron mixed with like baked clay, probably like china, you know, pottery, beautiful, wouldn't have, you know, painted toenails kind of finish. It would have, uh, and it was magnificent, awesome, splendid, terrifying, um, and uh, all at the same time. And so now he gets the interpretation. Your majesty, you are, in human terms, the king of kings. The God of heaven, who is over the king of kings, or the Lord of kings, has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Sounds a bit like Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it'll crush and break all the others. And just as you saw the feet uh, and toes that were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it'll have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. This is so exciting, I know you can hardly hold your breath. As the toes were partly of iron and baked clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you, just as you saw, the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture, not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven, remember this title has emerged in Babylon, because God 
is in a sense no, no longer in their minds enthroned in Zion. So where is he ruling from? Because the Jews didn't give up believing in God. Where is God? He's now over everything. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. Its interpretation is trustworthy. So we want to lean into the meaning of the dream. But as we do, I just want to remind you of the, as it were, the weight of this dream. First of all, this, this dream should catch your attention because it comes to a hostile witness. It comes to Nebuchadnezzar, who had no interest in a new kingdom that would take over from his own. He very much, as we see in the next chapter, thought of himself as uh, the final king. And then it receives a double witness. It is then, you know, you could kind of argue, well, it came to... Nebuchadnezzar and, you know, subconsciously he's worried about his kingdom and all that kind of stuff. But it then comes to a double witness and this person receives it completely supernaturally in prayer. The weight of the dream, just think of its significance. Daniel's interpretations then accurately predicts the history of empires for the next 400 years. That's pretty impressive. And then, for Christians, it contains an idea that Jesus made the center of his message and ministry. That God's eternal kingdom will come on earth. And that in the time of Jesus, he says, that from then is now. And we saw that these ideas... Uh, in chapter 2, are interpreted by, paired with, uh, in the structure of the book as a whole, with chapter 7. And that they, this kingdom wouldn't just be God, but it would be one like the Son of Man. A human being would come, and through that human being, there would be a rule and reign on earth. And so we read in Daniel 7, verse 27, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over and then we read this startling thing to the holy people of the Most High. In other words, this one man will unlock the ruling and reigning of all God's people. His kingdom, God's kingdom, through the Son of Man, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. So, that's like a staggering weight inside of this, like, you know, you're innocently reading through the book of Daniel, and you realize, wait a minute, this, like, links up things. And, and Daniel is, one of the commentators says, it's like the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He actually started a whole new style of writing called the apocalyptic. We mentioned it briefly last week. And 
And so many Jewish aspirations that were present at the time of Jesus cannot be understood without understanding this story that Daniel was talking about and the language that he is using. So that's the weight of the dream. The meaning of the dream is no human kingdoms can endure. They are not going to last. What we build, what, what comes out of us, does not stand a chance. We inject mortality into whatever we birth. And so the spirit of life, the spirit of God, gives life, imparts life. Unless he's in it, it cannot endure. No matter how impressive. And this gives powerful people sleepless nights. Nebuchadnezzar was not alone. Uh, the more power you got, the more worry you got, apparently. God's eternal kingdom is coming on earth. That was the meaning, the clear statement. Most of the Jewish people would have read that from a nationalistic point of view. They would have understood, okay, we're going to get another King David, another King Solomon, another king like the kings we've had in the past. And the prophets would have helped them understand, but the extent to which they understood, but make no mistake, this is a very important idea. God's kingdom is coming on earth, and Jesus would make this message the center point of what he called his gospel, the euangelion, the good news. And thirdly, that God's kingdom would come during the time of the kings of the fourth empire, which, uh, as we did the reconstruction, we know that is the Roman empire. So far... So good. Now, I want you to look at the screen and tell me what the problem is. You know, if A equals B, B equals C, C, does C equal A? No human kingdoms will endure. God's kingdom has come. Anyone? We still have human kingdoms. So that's where I had to really start rushing last week, and I'm going to slow down this time, Okay. You see, the, you see the challenge? We still have these human empires, dominions, enterprises, um, you know, that people are building and seemingly causing just as much harm as Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Hitler, you know, or, uh, yeah, I better not go any further. Um, Why do all these human kingdoms keep popping up when we believe that God has come as king in Jesus? Now, before we offer some solutions to this problem, we need to understand that this messianic expectation that God would come as king was like absolutely at its red hot peak in Jesus' day. There was such a sense of anticipation, and the harder it got under Rome, the more the Jewish anticipation sort of like got inflamed. And even once Jesus had, um, you know, been crucified, resurrected from the dead, and ascended into heaven, Jewish nationalism continued on a trajectory that Jesus warned would result in the utter destruction of Jerusalem, which then happened in, you know, the old dating was 8070, now we understand might be 8068, depends on which scholar you're reading and what dating system they're using. But more or less a lifetime later. 
I mean, not a lifetime, a generation later, about 30 years uh, or 40 years or so. So Daniel's book was something around a, like a bestseller around the time of Jesus. And Jesus' proclamation that the kingdom is here was so explosive, precisely because Israel was counting down between the kingdoms. And they were waiting for this fulfillment of this prophecy. And lots of people were now writing apocalyptic literature. Um, not nearly as reliably and accurately and with as much inspiration as Daniel, but the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and a whole bunch of others, we now have so much more apocalyptic literature available to us that people were actually generating during this time. And what we can tell you is that the expectation was sky high, and then Jesus comes and pours fuel on the fire. Um, now, initially, he, you know, he did not take on the term Messiah because he knew it carried so much political weight. But he uses another of Daniel's terms called the Son of Man. And he absolutely talks about the kingdom of God all the time. And eventually he would tell his friends in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and his enemies in Mark 14, 62, that they will see the kingdom of God come in their day. They won't die. Daniel chapter 2 and 7 will come true. And so he says in Mark 13, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And then at his trial, he told the high priest when asked if he was the Messiah, I am, said Jesus. You will see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. And he's saying to them, God's kingdom has come. The Son of Man coming on the clouds now, we might think that's the second coming. There's a lot of scholarly debate. I'm not going to go there right now. I'm aware of the debate. But I want to tell you that judgment day is what is in mind in Daniel chapter 7. And judgment day happens on two occasions. It first happens to Jesus and everyone inside of Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, your judgment is past tense by at least 2,000 years. Because he took your judgment for your sins. And so there's this sense that we, that we saw when um, we're looking. That there's this telescopic effect in prophecy. You know, when you're looking at a mountain range... It kind of becomes difficult to tell what's between the lines of all the mountains. And you might think that one of those ridges is now very close to another ridge. When in reality, there's actually a, another whole thing that could be out of your sight. And so what the telescopic effect does is it makes things appear simultaneous that are actually maybe quite far apart. And in the prophetic, that can also happen. So when people are looking and they sing, they accurately sing, but because they're seeing from a distance, it appears simultaneous. And so the picture is not wrong. It's simply incomplete because it seems to imply that all judgment will be simultaneous and the kingdom, that one, one kingdom replacing the other is pretty much instant. And so in the Old Testament... The idea was that you'll have this, and then you'll have that. So it's this, then that. 
when we get to the New Testament, it unpacks and becomes a little more interesting. In which you have this, this age, and not then that. You have this age and the age to come happening at the same time. Now, I know that sounds really complicated. And certainly the Old Testament, and, and we talk about this as the now, not yet. Certainly the Old Testament anticipated largely that you would have this age, which was marked by human rule, dominion, uh, control, power, politic, whatever it is. And then would come the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, and then you'd go into the age to come, the life of the eternal ages. And, and you'd move from this age into the age to come. Now, strictly speaking, they also believed in the Old Testament that the age to come would be a vast improvement. So instead of just having a, you know, a single timeline, it is like the day of the Lord enters and the whole of the world steps up to a completely new level. Does that make sense so far? Now, when Jesus comes, we find that the Bible actually talks about the two ages overlapping. Why am I taking you through this? Because when we look at Daniel, we might make the mistake of insisting that we have to take Daniel and literally, if Jesus comes, then that should have finished it, and Daniel made a mistake. And if Jesus thought he was bringing the kingdom of God, and he didn't wipe out all the human kingdoms, then Jesus was making a mistake. But Jesus himself taught that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is actually present. It's here now, especially in him and in his person and in his ministry. And then he taught that the kingdom will be delayed. He told a whole lot of parables that you've got to be really patient, that you need to keep your, you know, the oil in your lamp burning because you know, the master's going to be going a long time and you need to keep the house ready and everything. And then he taught clearly that the kingdom's also in the future. So was he confused? No, we get confused. But essentially what he was doing is he was pointing to this reality that the two ages will overlap. And in the first age, when he came, he elevated the world to the age to the come. And the age to come has essentially begun inside human history. Daniel is correct. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. That's the witness of Scripture and of the New Testament as the fulfillment of this promise. The other thing we learn is that from the dream that the rock of the kingdom starts small and it grows. Jesus himself said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the tiniest of all the seeds. And so what we talk about is that the kingdom of God was inaugurated in the coming of Jesus. Inauguration, it begins. It starts. And the interesting thing is, is if we look now at Daniel chapter 2 in the prophecy, it's recorded history. So I've got some secular historians here. Um, for example, Will Durantu is one who wrote the story of civilization. He won the Pulitzer Prize for it. 
Um, and the story of civilization is an 11-volume series if you want to go and read it. I found a summary by a guy called Richard Simmons. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he describes what, what this non-Christian historian regards as the apex of human history. He says this, There is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned and oppressed by a succession of emperors bearing all trials with fierce tenacity, still multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generate chaos, fighting sword with word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state history has known. Secular historian, Caesar and Christ met in the arena, and Christ won. Tell me Daniel's wrong. To quote from Durant directly, that a few simple people should appear in one random generation and invent such a powerful and appealing personality as Jesus Christ, together with so lofty an ethic, such an inspiring vision of human brotherhood, would be a miracle far greater than any recorded in the Gospels themselves. The miracle would be inventing Jesus if Jesus was not the miracle worker, promise keeper, Waymaker, didn't get the words in the right order. <laughs> the kingdom has been inaugurated. It says the present is kingdom is present. It's here now. It's here in me, and wherever I am, I'm carrying the kingdom. And yet there is the sense of the kingdom delayed, the kingdom not yet, the kingdom that is in the future. This is the season in which the rock grows. This is the season in which the rock, through the people of God, steadily grinds its way through the kingdoms of man. Now, when I balance that, that could just be rank triumphalism. I've got to say, that's not it. When you read the rest of Daniel, this is just like being introduced. When you read the rest of Daniel, you realize a lot of evils going on at the same time. And that there's going to be persecution and tribulation and, you know, all kinds of mean and nasties that's going to be inside this process of the kingdom growing. So let's be fair to Daniel. We mustn't oversimplify this one uh, dream that he is interpreting. And so in this inauguration, you get a sense that that which is, is here is not fully here. A day will come when it will be fully here. Is there a human analogy for this? King Shaka of the Zulu Nation is back on TV. You know, Shaka Lembe, and I don't know if anyone's watching it. Um, his empire was forged in the fires of ongoing warfare with the Ndwandwe people who were invaders that kept attacking this relatively small tribe called the Zulu. And they were essentially a tribe amongst the, the wider Nguni people. And Shaka began training his, his uh, impis, his warriors, 
They developed new technology. Because in those days, the praise singers, um, they hadn't read about Jehoshaphat, but the praise singers used to go in front. And they'd basically, warfare consisted of some clever insults and then throwing spears and then, you know, kind of, there wasn't a lot of manslaughter. There was just constant raiding. And he was tired of this. And so he said, we're not going to hurl abuse at them. We're just going to kill them. And he said, the way we're going to do that is we're going to take a short spear called an ikluk. And when they throw their spears, then we're going to run after them. And we're going to stab them in the guts, face to face, looking them in the eyeballs. And it made him a formidable general of his army. The other thing he did is he mastered the art of dividing his troops into physical ability, normally by age. And his stronger, sort of like older guys, they would form like the chest of what he called his bull. And they'd go straight into that battle, wait for the spears to be thrown, and, then, and, he, and they built these huge shields. So they weren't scared of the spears being thrown. They would take them, and then they would rush and drop their shields, rush and sometimes use their shields for war. And then he developed the ability to take his cavalry, which didn't have horses, was young men who were barefoot, and they ran through the felt, thorns, rocks, whatever. He trained them unafraid, and they encircled the enemy, and they would crush the enemy in his formation. Now, Shaka Zulu had a, a decisive battle near Mklatuze in, uh, in KZN. It was a two-day battle. He defeated his opponents, the Ndwandwe. But Shaka knew that even though he's taken out the worst, he still had to then go from there to Zwide, where the rulers of the Ndwandwe lived, and tear down their palaces, burn the place to the ground, and strip them completely of their power. When did Shaka win the war? Adam Khlatuze. When did he finish fighting? At Zwide. You see, sometimes you can have a decisive battle that sets the shape of the rest of the war. When Jesus came and he showed us who the Father is and he died for our sins and he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven, I want to tell you that in theology, that is the victory of God. There isn't going to be a greater day in human history than that day when Jesus took Judgment Day into himself and for everybody else who would put their faith in him. Paul says, those of you who believed in him, by faith you've died with him. You actually rise with him. You're in Christ Jesus. And so with Jesus, the decisive battle that introduced the kingdom of God and its lawful authority on the earth came when he confronted sin, broke its power outside Jerusalem. As he takes sin into himself, pays for it, makes full atonement, breaks the power of death itself, and rises from the dead as the first fruits of a new human race, God's holy people. So this is where we didn't even, and so now we live, as it were, in which both now and not yet are true. The kingdom is now, and yet the kingdom is future. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're forgiven now, 
but you're still working to deal with, as it were, the presence of a fallen world. Sometimes we see this in issues, you know, Jesus often healed the sick, but we know in Nazareth he couldn't because there was no faith. The role of, of faith in bringing the kingdom is another whole discussion. But we need to understand that if we're faced with a not yet, it's not just because you didn't have enough faith or you weren't good enough or whatever. And as Ricky shared, sometimes that's the enemy, what the enemy wants you to believe. So there are three very important consequences that are part of the realization God's kingdom has come. Daniel was not wrong. Jesus was not wrong. God's rule and reign have begun on the earth. And they are slowly undoing in an ongoing battle. Now that's what Daniel didn't first see. As we get to later chapters, we'll see that there's abominations that cause desolation. We'll see that there's tribulation and suffering and hardship. In this first vision, you don't get that. You just get the sense that God is sending a kingdom. And sometimes that's what we need to hear. We need to hear God has sent his son and his kingdom has begun. Doesn't mean all the suffering's over. Doesn't mean everything's been put to right. But it does mean the kingdom has come. But if this is true, then the very first thing we need to say is this kingdom is different. This kingdom is so, so different. Virtually all human empires and kingdoms start with battle, with bloodshed. And the kings and emperors that emerge, emerge with blood on their hands. Jesus came to do battle. But he does battle in a way that blows my mind. He does not kill his enemies. He loves them. He loves them enough to die for them. He loves his enemies enough to die for their sins. When you see him at the end of history... In the book of Revelation, acclaimed King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and his robe is dipped in blood. I ask you, whose blood is on his robe? It's not his enemies. Jesus is carrying the blood that cleanses from all sin into a broken world so that he might make it new. Repentance and forgiveness for sins will be preached in my name, he says. You know, for this reason, the Messiah, Luke 24, as he's risen from the dead, must suffer, must die, must rise, and will rise from the dead. And in his name, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations beginning right here in Jerusalem. He's changing the world. His kingdom is different. We're so used to kingdoms that have to trap people with power and control and bloodshed. We're so used to empires that are driven by fear. What's it like to have a king of love? Who rules from a throne of grace. 
and whose scepter is justice and righteousness. This kingdom is so different. You know, when you understand <clears throat> this part about the kingdom, it makes such sense that the kingdom couldn't come in a single battle because he, although he opposes and overthrows the enemy's authority, he's yet to win the hearts of the world. And that's why this message is going to be preached in his name to all nations. He's here to win the hearts of the world. Can I tell you he's here to win your heart? And that he would not use cruelty or fear to bring you to himself. He will use grace and love because that's the nature of our king. But we do need to respond because if we keep aligning to the evil that he had to die for we will forfeit the grace that he offers us another really important thing every another consequence every aspect every dimension of his kingdom is potentially not fully but potentially available now his kingdom brought deliverance. Means deliverance is potentially available now. His kingdom brought healing. But we need to understand, even as I say that, it's available every time God's people receive a fresh breakthrough of his heart. And of his love and of his truth and of his spirit. God is not going to do this without his people. We read in Daniel 7 that he reigns through his holy people. And when his holy people receive a fresh impartation of revelation and of love and of compassion and of righteousness and of purity and of justice, you can expect more of the kingdom to be available in that space. But let me remind you, every aspect of the kingdom will then still involve a fight. You're fighting a defeated enemy, but he's a liar, he's a thief, he's a destroyer, and he wants us to forget that this victory belongs to God. It's available, but it's a fight. And then lastly... Keep it real. There's a prophetic tension in this now, not yet, that must not be spiritualized. What do I mean? That we sort of like go, Daniel, I know that there are kingdoms around, but the kingdom of Jesus is just a spiritual thing. That we receive Jesus in our hearts now, and one day we will receive the kingdom of heaven. That's not what Jesus showed, and that's not what Jesus taught. He showed that the kingdom comes in the bodies of sick people who get made well. The kingdom comes in the souls of tormented people who get set free from demons. The kingdom comes in broken communities where we overcome suspicion and fear and prejudice and where outcasts are welcomed in his name. 
The kingdom comes into our unequal economics we see in the early chapters of Acts, where inequality and oppression are overthrown by generosity and by honor and by justice. The kingdom comes even in the midst of brutal persecution. As again and again throughout history, God's people have prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In short, the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. That's when kingdom is coming. Jesus didn't say one day. He says every day. Every day you need your daily bread. Every day on that day you also pray. May your kingdom come on earth. Keep it real, guys. Keep it real. Understand this isn't just for one day out there. That people need compassion now. People need community now. People need deliverance now. We need healing now. We need racial healing. We need physical healing. We need this kingdom. We need it now. And the key then becomes, will we, God's people, open ourselves in faith to his promises? Do we see it by faith? Will you make it yours, like these promises? Will you take it home and keep it real?